0: Welcome to all the social ladies. With CEO of Likeable Media Carrie Kirpin. Now, Carrie Kerpen. Hi, everyone, and welcome to All the Social Ladies. I am Carrie Kirpin, CEO of Likeable Media, and I have the honor and the privilege this week of speaking with Sally Krawczyk, who is the business leader of 85 Broads. Sally has often been referred to as one of the most successful and influential executives in the financial services industry. You're going to be totally wowed and floored by her history and her road to get to where she is today. In 2013, she bought 85 Broads, which is an amazing network for women. And she's also no stranger to social media with close to 500,000 LinkedIn followers as a LinkedIn influencer and 22,000 followers on Twitter. I would tell you her story, but you know what? She's pretty amazing at telling it herself, so I can't wait to welcome her today and have her here. And I'm so honored to have you, Sally. Welcome.
1: Oh, Carrie, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for hosting me.
0: Oh, it's such a joy to have you. And I think for many of our listeners, we want to hear the story of how you became you so you are this huge role model and have had this amazing career and we'd love to hear that story. How did you get to be you? I guess is the big question. How are you? <laughs> how, you? How
1: much time do you have? Oh, because I've got it, all the it's time a for long you. Long story. It's a it. long story. You know, I I tell you, there's the, there's the there are the facts of it, right? Which grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Went to school. I thought I was going north at the time to University of North Carolina. I really told everybody I was going north. Moved to New York because I wanted an adventure. Went to Wall Street, Solomon Brothers, late 80s. Um, Really spent my 20s not knowing who I was or what I wanted to do and and not being able to find myself. I kept trying to change careers and change jobs and change husbands and change, change, (laughs) change and, and remember Sort of sitting in my kitchen at the age of twenty-nine, for your younger listeners, thinking, "I've just blown this. I, I've, I've blown it. I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. I don't know who I want to be. I don't know what I am." And having a real insight right before I turned thirty that I wanted to be an equity research analyst. Hmm. I can hear your listeners laughing. <laughs> you know that's that's sexy, <laughs> but for me it was because at that point I recognized that I wanted the the writing and the analytics and the the ability to dig into companies and engage with smart people. And it took me all of my 20s to figure it out. Once I figured it out, I went to the right firm, Sanford Bernstein, became a research analyst covering Wall Street, and was successful very quickly, in part because I'd figured it out. Um, Covered the industry, um, was very controversial, wrote negative research, which nobody did at the time. It was right, was promoted to director of research took us out of the underwriting business, and not to go into too much detail, but took a controversial business position mm-hmm. that our business was riddled by conflicts, and we were going to give up money and not give in to the conflicts. Um, it was a, a business strategy that went awry for a long time. Then Elliot Spitzer came in, investigated Wall Street. We were the largest of the, and most prominent of the firms that was not in conflicted business,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and our business went to the moon. Then I was called to run Smith Barney by Sandy Weil, so I went from 386 people on a Tuesday to 25,000 on a Wednesday working for me, ran Smith Barney to turn it around after the research scandal, CFO of Citi, um, private bank, Smith Barney, and then later ran Merrill Lynch for, um, for Bank of America. So a lot of big companies in there and a lot of turnarounds, a lot of turnarounds. Um, and after I left Bank of America, or more accurately, was invited to leave Bank of America, I decided to turn towards what has become my passion, as I realized its importance, which is women in business and the economic power in the economic and financial engagement of women, um, the ability to make a make change and make a difference by engaging in this extremely important topic through. Unfortunately named to be renamed "85 Broads" through networking um, is is uh, an opportunity like I haven't seen in my career, even at the biggest of the jobs I worked in. So I tried to compress it, Carrie. How did I do?
0: You were awesome. <laughs> you were awesome. Well, I have lots of questions based off of that, and I know that your your passion, as you say, is is women in business, and so. Going through the ranks of a, of a really male-dominated industry, did you find that you had to play a certain role? Like, did you have to act differently as a woman, or did you just feel that you were a person pushing through? Was there a difference because you were a woman?
1: Well, let me, let me answer it this way. I tried to be very thoughtful about how I could be most effective. hmm Um, and intuitively I recognized, and now I've looked at the research and conducted the research to back it up, intuitively I recognized that if I cried at work, it didn't work. If I screamed at work, it didn't work. If I got shrill at work, it didn't work. Um, So I I began to really sort of test, how can I be effective? How can I be heard? How can I best listen to other people around me? Um, And so it wasn't that necessarily... You know, I changed my—I changed how I was, mm-hmm. but I think for all of us, men and women, uh, you know, everybody in business, leadership lessons, communication lessons, management lessons, they, they come to us every day in thousands and thousands of ways, and each of us need to really take the opportunity to learn about how can I be most effective. I asked for feedback of everybody I ever saw um, so that I could be more effective.
0: So it was really about asking for feedback for you.
1: Well, and it's important uh, because we women are less likely to get, re- to get feedback than the gentlemen are. This is what research oh. shows. Um, and that, again, if leadership um, skills are mi- thousands of micro-lessons, if we're only getting hundreds of micro-lessons and the guys are getting thousands, something's broken. Now, the research also further shows that the reason the gentlemen do not give us feedback is because they're scared we're going to cry. And I'm not joking. Wow. And so, therefore, I somehow intuitively picked up early in my career. Therefore, I had to ask for it. And maybe the first four times I asked for feedback, I didn't get it. But then the gentlemen started to give it to me. And when they saw that I really wanted it, they actually felt like they were in the game with me and were willing to give it to me.
0: Do you have any advice on taking feedback? One thing that I've seen in employing a lot of young women is not that they'll cry on feedback, but that it is an art and a skill to learn to take feedback and use it. Do you have any advice on when you're given feedback, how for young women to be able to receive
1: it? Well, I have advice on how to, how to receive it and how oh, to give it. Perfect. Receive it like a woman or like a man, whichever one. Um, you know, even if it doesn't feel fair, do not fight it because perception is reality. First of all, never, if you're emotional about the feedback you receive, thank the individual who gives it to you and leave the room. Do not then have an emotional discussion because particularly for us women, we may indeed cry. Um, and for the gentleman, you know, they can get angry. Neither of those are good things. So mm-hmm. receive the feedback. If you disagree with it, take it to heart, because even though it might have been Susie Q who messed up on the, uh, you know, the latest deal and it wasn't you, this is very interesting what you've got. People perceive it as you. So that feedback is actually a gift, even if you don't agree with it. Um, and I take it to heart. If someone has taken the time to tell you that your presentation skills are too soft or too girly, really take that to heart and see if you can adjust it again, even if it's not fair. And then I would say ask for the feedback again. Ask for it again and again. Again, even if you don't agree with it, that person has done you a favor. And even if it wasn't the feedback didn't feel right, then check over time how that feedback is changing. Um So, And I'd say the way to give feedback, stick and move, stick and move. Again, feedback is a gift, and the person you're giving it to, you're doing a favor to. So what I found earlier in my career was before, first of all, I would only give feedback at the end of your review. I would get myself psyched up for it for days because I found it so stressful. Yes. And then I would talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. The truth is little bits of feedback are are just a joy, joy for someone to receive. So stick and move. Don't apologize for it first. Don't have a lengthy intro. Don't apologize for it after. Don't soften it. As simple as, hey, you know, Carrie, really enjoyed doing the podcast. Uh, next time, you know... W- w- the intro was too long or, you right. know, whatever it is, right. right? You actually did a great job. Right. <laughs> um, Thank but you. things like that, you know, very good meeting with the client. You can be even stronger if you finish with the ask. Or, um, you know, I read, the pre- I read the presentation, loved it, would have been better if it was cut by a third. That kind of thing. And don't apologize for it and then walk on.
0: That's great advice. It's great advice for a lot of our listeners, both who have a lot of employees and those who are just really entering the workforce and looking at how they can be the best that they can be. I love it. Another area that you talk about, Sally, a lot is about taking risks and, and how you've taken risks at all stages of your career. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that theory of taking risks and and how important it's been to you in your career?
1: Well, it's it's been my career. Mm-hmm. If I had not taken the risks I've taken, I would have had a very different career in life than I have. Um, Whether it was, you know, as mentioned, when I was a baby research analyst back in the day at Sanford Bernstein, writing negative research reports on companies that no one else was writing. Um, I knew I was standing out by doing it, but what's the point of not standing out? Um, you know, when I was director of research and we changed our strategy to be very different from the rest of Wall Street, stood out in the pack, we, we could have failed. I remember when I was invited to go run Smith Barney. I actually, it's, it's hard to believe now, but one, I, I went, went out to dinner with one of my dear friends and laid it out to her and said, I've been offered this job by Sandy Weil to run Smith Barney at Citigroup. What do you think? And she said, you shouldn't take it. Really? Um, which floored me. It it really floored me because I didn't think there was another answer on the planet. And she said, you know, you could fail. You could fail in public. You're going to be on the front page of the journal, Wall Street Journal. You know, you'll be away from your kids. Fair enough. You know, you'll mm-hmm. likely fray your marriage. I mean, her reasons were not the wrong reasons, um, but it was such a different perspective. My perspective was, geez, if I don't take this, I'll always wonder why I didn't. The worst thing that can happen is I'll be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal for being fired, and I can handle that. Right. Um, And I'm going to see my kids less, but my husband is willing to take half a step back in his career, Mm -hmm. and so this will be my turn, and he'll have his turn later, which, in fact, today he's having, as it turns out.
0: So that's great. Yeah.
1: So do you have ones that you wish you didn't do? I don't know that Mm -hmm. I have. Well, besides my first marriage, I don't have anything um, I wish I didn't do, but... Uh, to be transparent, because I talk about my failures all the yes. time, and I really think it's important for us, too. Um, I was I was brought in to Bank of America by Ken Lewis in 2009, right after they bought Merrill Lynch, the old thundering herd. And he brought me in to turn the business around. Um, we put in, I put in what I thought was a great team. Um, we really got the financials for that business and the, the health of that business in much better shape. Okay. And I was sent home two years later. Um, the business was growing, the business was ahead of plan. Every, every little, you know, I'm a good girl, I try to get A's on my tests. In the financial <laughs> metrics, we were in great shape. But what had happened is that Ken, who had told, committed to me he would be there for two years, had left, announced his retirement after two months. And so I had lost my mentor, my sponsor, my rabbi, whatever you call it. Um, and without having that air cover there... I was really lost to the company. and so that was one where I took, certainly took a calculated risk. And while it's you know it did a workout, that did it not work out, I was there for two years, but I wasn't there for the rest of my life. Um, and you know, it was public. It was a public firing.
0: Yeah, that must have been very, very hard, especially because it sounds like you were making the metrics that you were hired to make.
1: You know, but I knew I wasn't um, in the inner circle. So I was surprised but not completely surprised. Um, I just didn't I didn't ever get to that level of comfort. I mean, when I was at Bernstein uh, and I would go to work, I felt like I was at home. Right. When I was running Smith Barney, I felt like I was at home. I remember telling my dad once, I don't think I've shared this with anybody, that I just felt I could completely be myself at work. And if you have that feeling, as I did at Bank of America, oh, you know, I don't know these guys, so I, I better think about what I'm about to say. You know, that was the indication that it wasn't the right fit. So I took plenty of risks and they paid off. That was a risk I took and it didn't pay off. Did you, do you feel
0: like you know that pretty early on about about a job when you enter in a different direction, or if you if you feel that early on, do you think that it's on you to kind of self correct? How far do you think someone should push when they're in that type of situation? Right, they go from one job, they feel like they're making the next step. Right, they go there, they realize it's not really home. It doesn't feel like home. Right. Uh, do they self correct well, early? What What do you What are your well, thoughts I on think, that?
1: Look, I, I think we all need to know ourselves, and um, I have gotten to where I can read my gut uh, about certain things. And and for some of your listeners, they may be newer in their careers, and they're they're learning to trust their gut and learning to to – they're starting to figure out what makes sense for them and what doesn't. But I would actually go back. I'm not sure how we are making this into the feedback podcast, uh, but I'd go (laughs) back to the first principle of Ask for Feedback. Um, You know, if you're three weeks into your new job, which is soon – Yes. Go into your boss's office. Say, hey, it's early days. Um, I'd love to know how um, I'm tracking in these early days and how I can do better. Um, you know, talk to your peers around you. Ask their advice. Ask their guidance. Obviously, filter out stuff that doesn't feel quite quite right to you. Um, but I think you never lose by, again, not a big deal, not a big drama, not a big production, not a big to-do, but asking for advice one never goes wrong. Now, that being said, there's some, you know, every job isn't going to be perfect, and it's not all going to be these wonderful stories about right. how, and then I persevered and everything worked out. <laughs> and it was super. Some, sometimes you work for jerks. Right. Right. Sometimes you work with people who are, you know what, I mean, you know, just sometimes you got to move on. Yeah. Um, and it's okay to say that, too. It's really not okay for your personal well-being and your personal health to stay in a job you hate at a company you don't agree with, working for jerks for long periods of time. You know, life is just too short because, you know, you live and then you're dead for, like, forever. Yeah. Ever. Ever and ever. Ever and ever. Best I know. Best, but to my, the best of my knowledge.
0: Right. So the best of all of our knowledge, really. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. So you, you mentioned a little bit earlier when you were talking about Bank of America that you had somebody who had kind of sponsored you and they left. Can you tell me about what you think the importance of a sponsor or mentor is in your career? I know that you've had quite a few.
1: Well, it's the difference, I think, between success and failure, or can be. Let me rephrase that. It can be the difference between success and failure. So back in my Bernstein days, baby research analyst, covering insurance and then the Wall Street firms, there was a research analyst, senior research analyst in the property casualty insurance industry, so in a related field, who became my sponsor. Now, we never would have used that word. I wouldn't have known what that word meant. Right. But this was a guy who not only was my mentor, um, and by mentor, I mean someone who answers your questions, right? Not only was my mentor, but would read my research, would critique my presentations, would... Give me advice on dealing with clients. Um, I mean, just, you know, we were probably in and out of each other's offices 20 times a day. Um, Would introduce me to folks, et cetera? And very importantly, because of the feedback he was giving me on my research, I therefore did not make, I made some rookie mistakes, but I didn't make all the rookie mistakes. He probably took years. I know he took years off my career trajectory, and even more importantly, he fought for me. He was a big deal at the company, and I remember he went into our director of research's office on several occasions and said, you have to promote her. You need to promote her, right? She's an associate now. She shouldn't be an associate. She should be an analyst, and when new coverage came up, she should have that coverage. Wow. I mean, I owe him a tremendous amount. In contrast, as mentioned at Bank of America, on the day I was sent home, I'd never been as a head of plan The business was growing. I think it was the only one of the businesses that actually was was demonstrating top-line revenue growth. Um, It was gaining share of its competitors. Everything appeared to be okay, and yet I was sent home because there was nobody in that room when they said, you know, we need to downsize the management team by two or three. Um who said, No, well it can't be her. Not her. It should right. be him. Look at look at her. There was clearly nobody in that room making that argument. Right. There was nobody in your corner there for no. that.
0: No. And do you think that when you're looking at a sponsor and you're looking at somebody to help you grow your career, do you find that that's that's something that you need to work on on finding a sponsor, or that a sponsor finds you, or is it a collaborative approach? How does that happen? How does it? How does it? Come well, to be? it's a,
1: you know, how did you meet Dave? <laughs> well. I mean, I hate to I hate to take the analogy yep. to um, for those of you who aren't aware, Dave is her her yeah. husband. Um, I hate to take it into the been to the personal like that, but they are relationships. I mean, how do you meet the people in your life? Um, And the the short answer is, you know, we are not in the Cinderella fairy tale. Right. If, you know, just because you're a good girl doesn't mean somebody's going to come and save you and rescue you, right? I mean, don't even get me started on this fairy tale. Just, (laughs) you know, the whole Sleeping Beauty, the whole Snow White. Yeah. That might happen. It could happen. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Um, as, as I like to say, there is no HR fairy godmother. And so you have to put out those feelers. Um, now you you can't walk around asking people to be your mentor, or your sponsor, as Sheryl Sandberg says, but you can form relationships with people and ask for their advice. And just as happens, you know, with all of our connections in life, when, you know, when I went to college, I met a lot of people, had a lot of you know, drank a lot of beer with a lot of people, but there's certain people who I remain in contact today who are deep relationships, but most of them aren't. So you just have to plant those little seeds, ask for that feedback and something will work out over time.
0: And it sounds like in general, being open to that kind of connection and and allowing yourself to be open to that the same way you would be with a partner is that you're open to meeting somebody, you're open to having a sponsor, you're open to that, asking the right questions to get there. Sounds like oh, that's... And
1: I'd say even more than open, sort of, you know, looking for it, not yep. desperately looking for yep. it, but looking for it. But one thing, Carrie, that we need to add that's very important, if you suck at your job, you won't get a sponsor. Of course. Right. So we, I just want to make sure we put that in there because in order to get a sponsor, you need to be good, probably very good, and great, right? Because when that, you know, the story I went through when that senior research analyst was advocating for me, he wouldn't have done it if I was terrible at my job. And he probably wouldn't have done it even if I was just very good at my job. He needed to have the confidence that if he put himself out there for me, that it would come back to him in some way, right? And not a, you know, you get paid X more because you you were nice to Sally, but more in a Credibility. You know, way to go, yes. right? Yes. Way to help the firm. You yes. were right about her. You you got it. You, you're, you're a good partner.
0: I would imagine that it's hard to feel at home at a place if you're not good at your job, right? What makes you, I, for me at least in my experience, when I felt really in a groove and in a zone and loving where I was, it was because I felt so good at what I did and felt so confident in my ability and the ability of those around me that I was really inspired. I, I think it's sometimes very hard if you're not great at your job to feel. To feel... Oh no doubt about it right, in every right. way yes. in every way
1: but you know look that's a little bit of what our 20s are for right um, you know I, I was a i was an investment banker when i started out i think i was a good investment banker but it didn't i didn't take to it it didn't take to me uh, you know i then went into marketing for a period of time i worked actually in time magazine business office for a oh, period wow. of time i tried a whole bunch of things and all of them felt like i had on a shoe that didn't quite fit it was really only when I got to Bernstein as a research analyst, again, probably not something that most of your you know, your <laughs> listeners would think for them is the aha. But I'm telling you when I did it, after I wasted my twenties, I was I think I was there was an article even that it might have been the fastest at that time that anybody had been a ranked analyst. Forget about what it means, but it'd wow. been successful. Um uh, because when everything lined up, it all just friggin' lined up at once.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's that's incredible, actually. It's when you feel like you're home. I know. I remember my my dad actually was a in school for physics. He was he was studying to be a physicist. And then so he met my mom and and they talked about it. And she was like, you know, I think you should go to law school. They had had this discussion. And he said the minute he sat down in law school, he just felt like Mm -hmm. I'm home, Mm -hmm. you know, and that feeling of like knowing when you're in the right spot, it's just the best. I think it's the best feeling, and that that must have been so great for you. Must have but it so was great, great.
1: But, but here's the other thing I would tell your listeners. It doesn't necessarily last forever. Right. Um, you know, our parents, my father's a lawyer, too, as it turns out, so we'll have something to chat about yeah. later. But my father chose his career when he was, what, 22, coming out of college, and right. he's in his 70s now and still going strong, and he's loved it. I think the days of that, for, for certainly for my generation, yes. you know, Carrie, for your generation, for the next generation, I think it's over. I do too. And, and, you know, and I think with very rare exceptions, you know, you're the pediatrician, you know, and that's what you do. Um, but business is changing so fast Uh, that it's impossible for something that is hot today to be hot a decade from now. Uh, And particularly for us women, you know, we we do have the children, uh, last I checked, and (laughs) so many of us end up making different decisions around our family that can pull us in and out of the workforce. And so, you know, there's a volatility uh, to our work lives today that didn't exist in our parents' day, that I think we all just have to navigate our way through. And in some ways, it's the great adventure. You know, it's not the, oh, gosh, I'm doing this at 20, I'll be doing this at 70. But, you know, having to sort of stay on top, because what you loved 10 years ago, you might not love anymore just because you've changed, but what you loved 10 years ago might not even exist anymore.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a, a major shift that you see in how long people are at their jobs also in just changing careers, not just changing companies, but actually changing careers. They have a lot of different career changes now that that didn't really exist, you know, when we definitely when we were younger, for sure. You had mentioned uh, in an article I read about insecurity driving you, and that's something that really resonated with me, and I would love to hear about your perspective on that.
1: Well, you know, and it's got to be a fine line as with with most things, everything right. in in moderation. Um, but you know, sometimes I still I still wonder if I could, you know, I'm still fighting the 7th grade all-girls school battles <laughs> um where, you know, I was oh my gosh, I was that child. I was that child. You know that child. When you see that child, you yes. just say, oh, you are. Oh, no. Look at those Coke bottle glasses. Look at those corrective <laughs> shoes. Look at that unfortunate hair. And look at everybody making fun of you. Um, and, uh, you know, to this day, you sort of you sort of think, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going and just show everybody. So what, you know, when I was at Bernstein, we used to hire, believe it or not, for insecurity. Not the lack of it, but some of it, yep. you know, because the question is, what motivates people? Um, and insecurity is not a bad thing to motivate people, because it keeps people going when they might otherwise have, have stopped.
0: I agree. I, I agree. I think it's all about having something to prove to yourself a lot of the times that pushes you forward. And I just that really resonated with me when I read that you had said that. So I was like, oh, Sally, we're like sisters. I got it. It's 100 percent. Speaking of insecurity and playing into things, you know, a lot is is made around Uh, numbers and social numbers and scale. You know, social media actually opens up a whole new level of insecurity, right? Because everybody's public, everybody's conversations are public, everybody's numbers are public, et cetera. And you've had this and managed to build this really extraordinary social media following, uh, both on LinkedIn and Twitter, I know for sure. I and mean, I've seen you grow, and obviously you've grown with Dave uh, together, you and Dave Kirpin grown in the LinkedIn influencer space. And I'd love to hear a little bit about um, just some of how important social is to you and how it plays into what you're doing now.
1: You know, I, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and I started to explore, I'll tell you the truth, when I was at Running Merrill, um and i said you know i think this twitter is going to be big i think twitter is <laughs> going to be big and very typical big company and certainly financial services highly regulated i said you know i think we should be on twitter and ended up getting the, like you know bless their hearts, the whole Twitter rollout plan. I think it was a PowerPoint deck. It was multiple pages. It was a committee. You know, the whole, you know, and then we can roll the thing out in eight, eight months. And I'm like, right. like today, could we do it this afternoon? Nice. Look, I can sign on and start tweeting. And um, there was a certain freedom when I then left that big company to say, you know what, I'm now going to play with this because I don't really understand it, but I want to engage in it and I want to, I want to, get it and figure it out. Not that any of us have or, or will necess- ever will necessarily completely figure it out, but this is a new way of engaging and, and I want to start to to be part of it. So, you know, I started off tweeting a little bit and seeing what was going on there and, and then became involved in the influencers platform. And what has been so gratifying to me is that I have had these career ups and these career lessons and these career downs and these more career lessons, and to have the opportunity to share it with individuals who seem to get something out of it. Um, you know and, and particularly talking about my career challenges, which you know again, out on the West coast and in tech circles, everybody talks about failing and failing fast. I don't think you've got a lot of people in corporate America who are talking about failure, particularly openly. Right. And so to the, I, I thought, you know, to the extent that what I've been through, the scars that I have can be of help to anybody out there in any small way. It's, it's an honor, really. It's a pleasure and an honor to be able to do it. So I've loved it. I, you know, I actually was a journalism major back in the day in college. So, you know, I've sort of de-rusted the writing skills a bit. Um, and I've had a blast, a real blast.
0: That's so great. And I think it's so gratifying when you can put out life stories and and lessons and things you've learned, and then you see people really responding in real time and sharing it and finding value in it. I think that's that's definitely one of the key benefits for me When I have anything yeah. I can be vulnerable about or or tell a story that matters and then they share it and and feel strongly about it, it's it's such a great thing to know that you can help other young women
1: well and and I wasn't expecting it to be so positive and affirming right uh, and look, I know they're they're certainly areas where people are not, uh, but, you know, to, to just feel like you're in a sort of, I don't want to say happy community, because that, that sounds very Pollyanna, yeah. but um, a positive community of people who are learning from each other, it's really unlike anything um, that I've had in my career.
0: Yeah, it's a very, very supportive community. I mean, that's what I, what I've found is that for all the things you read about, you know, all of the negativity that goes on in the social space, there's just as many cheerleaders that you have in your corner, really rooting for you, and it's it's uh, it's a great experience until
1: I start to write about the big banks. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Every time I write about big bank reform, um, then the then the knives come out. You right. know, it's it's there's still uh, some pretty negative energy about the banks um, overall, and so, you know, that, that's the one area where if you're you're having a bad day, don't write about the banks because people start throwing knives at you.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: That's, <laughs> that's
0: a good point. That's not really in my wheelhouse of writing. But, yes, I would imagine that that would be the case. And so you went from Big Bank and you acquired 85 Broads. To, I know you said it's being renamed, which is very exciting. Tell me all about what 85 Broads is today and where you want it to yeah. go.
1: You know, I love it today, and, and I think in the first instance, it's more of, of what it does. So, um, as you mentioned, it's a professional woman's network. Um, it started as the, the the genesis of the name is it started as an informal, I think, dinner of Goldman Sachs female alums. Like, hey, let's go to dinner. Hey, let's do it again. 85 Broad Street was the name of the um, Goldman Sachs headquarters. They, they've since moved. And, the you know, it became... Informal for Goldman Sachs alums, and then I think for financial services, and then for women overall. And today we are 30-plus thousand women growing at a nice clip. Professional women, mostly urban, global, and across industries. Um, And it's interesting because last night I was just looking at it is an application process. um, And I was looking at the applications that were there. And I'd say entrepreneurs are our biggest group of joiners. Mm -hmm. Currently, um, and you know, you still see financial services, but you see a lot of corporate women, a lot of accountants, a lot of lawyers, a lot of media folks, a lot of healthcare. It really is across the spectrum now and across the world, and the women come together to, as, as we say, invest in themselves um, through the dues. Uh, and get lots of networking events, and the energy at these things, Carrie, is amazing. It's, exciting. Um, it's really amazing. Women, oh, I went through that. Oh, I, you know, I know someone who's looking for a board member. Ah, you know, an advisory board for a startup. Yeah, I, I can hook you up with that. There's a lot of amazing energy. We get together, we learn about things, and we go online um, and do WebExes and learn about things. And, you know, you were nice enough to do one for us, a yes. very well-attended what we call jam session on social media. Um, but we have them on a range of things, how to negotiate for success, how to get on a board, how to command a room, um, you know, how to finance your startup, top personal financial mistakes women make. Really, anything in the field of women and money is game for us. Um, and so, with the combination of networking, which has been demonstrated to be and called the number one unwritten su- rule of success in business, as well as education, a good deal of our effort is going to continue to be focused on making that better and better and better. Um, I've got a couple of other things off, up my sleeve which I'm not ready to announce today. Uh, but suffice it to say that we are going to continue to do some things that really will represent action around this topic.
0: Oh, that's great! Well, you'll for sure all the social ladies will be able to support you all the way. All my listeners, I'm certain, will be excited to be involved um, as you make those changes. Yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit about why women's networking groups are important versus broader business networking groups. Is it what? What's the important piece about that?
1: Well. It, uh... Whether we like it or not, whether it's right or not, whether, 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 we do find it easier to network with and ask certain questions of our own gender. Um, And, and of course, the guys have been doing this for forever. Of course. But, again, if you come to one of our events, um, you know, what you'll see is us talking about topics in small groups, typically over a glass of wine, that uniquely impact us as women. As women professionals, so it can be things like, um, you know. I, I, in fact, I, I have a story. I, I remember when I was being having a real challenge with uh, one of my CEOs. It was a fellow who ran City at the time, and was not able to feel like I was getting through to him. I remember going to the, all. I was the only female direct report he had, and going to the guys who were his directs and saying, "I don't feel like this is working. How do you communicate with this gentleman such that he can hear you?" And the guy said, oh, that's easy, scream at him. And I said, uh. I just know that's not going to work. Um, so I ended up reaching out to a woman who had worked with him in a prior job and said to her, how did you – How did you, and she said, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Let me, let me sort of tell you what worked for me and what didn't work for me. And so even that little example um, that what – you know, there are gender differences whether we like it or not, and what worked for them would never have worked for me, but what her advice worked very well. So when you go to these events, you you do hear topics like that coming up that are uh, perhaps, you know, more relevant for women than for men, and people just let their hair down a little bit. So network. I'm all in favor, you can't just network with women. You just right. can't. Right. Right. you got to network with the guys, too. But there is something about having a safe place you can go to um, outside of your company, outside of your company, where you can say, you know, my kid's having some problems. What'd you do when your kid had this kind of problem? Or, you know, my boss is just a, you know, male chauvinist pig. What, yep. How did you handle that? Having a safe place to have those conversations really matters. And what was so interesting to me is that as I looked through this network and the results, and I always say I'm a recovering research analyst, so I always <laughs> look to the numbers, but what we saw is our women were staying in their jobs to a much greater degree, staying in the workforce than the typical professional woman. So something magic is happening in the network.
0: Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. And so if if we want to find out about it, we go to 85 com.
1: You got it, 85broads.com. 85 and, and stay tuned for the rename, which is on its way.
0: Oh, awesome. Well, we're really, really excited to hear about that, and be sure to keep us updated, and I will definitely let the community know. And I just want to thank you, Sally, so much for coming on today. It's it's really, it's such an honor to get to talk to you, and I'm just I'm so impressed by your story and your vision, and just watching everything you're doing with 85 Broads is just amazing. Well,
1: right back at you. I Thanks. have really enjoyed getting to know you and Dave over the past year. I love what y'all are doing, and likewise would like to be supportive in whatever way. we I can be and we at 85 broads can be so thank you carrie
0: thank you so much sally you've been listening to all the social ladies with carrie kirpin ceo of likeable media you can follow carrie on twitter at carrie kirpin to
1: get current social media insights and great tips sign up for carrie's weekly newsletter by emailing newsletter at likeable.com